I am Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And joining us in the studio today is Principal Analyst Sam Stern to discuss the current state and more importantly, the future of EX. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Sam, there's a lot of stuff packed into EX or employee experience. There's culture, change management, there's innovation, there's simply the distract managing distractions of work and how loaded folks are. There's the command from the employees to have the, the company take a stand on social issues, enjoying the fray, if you will. There's a lot in there. So let's just go yeah. through one by one. In <laughs> your mind, what leads the charge? Which one in your mind says very front and center because it's hardest, most important, whichever yeah. way you think about it. Yeah. So for me, number one would be we need to make sure our employees can be productive. And the good news about that is that sounds kind of mundane, but when employees are making progress on their most important work and feel like the organization is doing everything in its power to help them be productive, that improves the employee experience. And so fundamentally, if I can come to work and get my work done, my important work, you know, for me as an analyst, that's my research, my writing, talking to clients, not distractions from other, from, you know, smaller, less important things, then I feel great about my job. And so that's a great employee experience and great for the company because your, your important workers are being productive on their important tasks. So that's where I would start. And that's where I often counsel companies to look for all the things you're putting in the way of your employees that make it more difficult for them to be productive or to feel like they're productive. But it strikes me that the, the culture journey or making companies more customer obsessed tries to redefine what is important. So some yeah. companies were working on things that ultimately proved to be less important and ultimately less productive. So this is not just having the employee choose, but part of the culture equation is let's make sure we define important well. Yeah, it's a great point. And um, because as you, as a company, and hopefully as your culture does too, shift to be more customer centric, to be more digitally centric, for any employee that is not customer facing, for example, if it's customer centric, they're now got, they have to worry, does my job still have enough importance that if I'm productive on my tasks, it matters. And so you do have work to do there to reconnect what they do to the value it provides to the firm now that the firm says its value is measured in a slightly different way. How does purpose play in that mix, right? Because it's, it's value to the customer and the employee doing their job and connecting it to that value. But there's, there's got to be an anchor that's maybe yes. uh, more emotional too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is really helpful, I think, for companies to improve the employee experience as a sort of a basic element of we know as a company what we're about, what our purpose is. And we've made it clear to you employees what that is. It was hopefully part of why you joined us in the first place. You were looking for that. And we have connected your work to how it helps us achieve that purpose. And then I think what's important to, to keep in mind is that literally every company in the world can have a higher purpose. There's no discrepancy between, well, we're in a hospital, so we're saving lives, and you're Subway sandwiches, so you're just making sandwiches. There's purpose in that too. And so you have to, and this actually helps with, I think, innovation and avoiding disruption. If Subway sandwiches thinks of its larger value as feeding people, satisfying this need, right, giving them food quickly, you know, something that is outside of just we make sandwiches in this existing format and model, that higher purpose is one, important to define what your purpose is, and two, to help you see actually the way we fulfill that purpose needs to evolve 
to meet changing consumer expectations and include changing technology capabilities and those types of shifts because you have the higher purpose clearly articulated. We have a concept of brand energy, whether the brand has sufficient energy in the market to create some affinity to drive to drive the business where it needs to go. Yeah. The same can be said about purpose. You yes. said could. I mean, I guess I'd argue that a company should have a purpose and that purpose should have sufficient energy because to your point, employees will make decisions based upon alignment to that purpose. Purpose helps with strategic decisions that are inherently nuanced. Yes. And it's a, a key determinant of what is important to your point on on a sandwich shop. If their desire is to please customers and make their day just better, you can imagine that the experience of being in the store itself now becomes important, not just the food. So I, my, my personal take is that purpose was important three years ago, somehow it became less important. And because it became less important, that is now injurious or impacting EX. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, calling out would versus should, they absolutely all should. It's just that they're really struggling with it. And I think a lot of companies don't feel that they're, what they do is worthy of a purpose or, you know, they, or, you know, there's the other problem where they think it's clear to everybody and it's not. And, and so I think there's a lot more work to do and it's an ongoing process. It's not something you solve in one year and, and don't have to come back to. Employees are turning over the way you create value for your customers is, is evolving. So it's something you have to keep working at over time. And I, I, I like your point about it really does help you prioritize and, and make sure you know what, what you should be doing and which new technologies you should be uh, integrating and which new customers you might want to serve because it's all aligned with your purpose. Is there also a generational comment here in terms of the purpose piece? Like I've certainly read studies about millennials wanting to work for firms that are more purpose-driven. Is that why this is coming back to the fore, maybe in addition to the comments that Victor's just made? Yes, they, we do see that, right, that the data um, shows the millennials care more about that. I think in part it's that the sort of long-term you know, agreement between worker and company of you give us your nine to five Monday through Friday, mm -hmm. we give you a job for life. Employers broke that contract a long time ago. Uh, employees have caught up with that and realized there's no deal here on that front. So it needs to be a deal of, a, you know, a mutual agreement that we are marrying each other here and that there's something in it for both of us and that our values are aligned, right? You don't marry someone who you don't have similar values to. So that's part of what the change is. That is more prevalent with other um, demographic groups in the workplace than you would think, right? We always think, oh, the millennials are the only ones who care. Everybody cares about this to some extent. And I think the other thing that's happened is it's so much more, um, you know, sort of common for the values of a company, its point of view in any realm that it's operating, right? It's political donations, any legislation that it's, that it's trying to influence, um, you know, what it gives to charity, not how it treats its workers. That's all public now in a way that maybe it wasn't 10 years ago. So you can actually interrogate any aspect of the firm to see if it's in alignment with its larger purpose. Yeah, I think the cautionary tale for EX as well as the cautionary tale towards CMOs and marketing is that there's a, a desire for and sometimes a requirement for firms through the lens of purpose to make social stands. Yeah. So that it's not strictly that they're making charitable contributions or have a community program, which could be sort of generic to social causes. In some cases, you're seeing more and more firms or employees take a stand on things like climate change, on the social issues of the day, and candidly, the endless run of outrages that exist out in the marketplace. Right, right. Yes. And there's, you know, 
it's particularly, I think, in the States, it's such an outrage-driven media cycle. And then it's hard for you to not sort of have some point of view, even though it's going to probably move on to the next outrage shortly after. So this, this goes along the same lines of when CX was born. There was always, at least in my mind, a sentence that said, CX is not altruism. It's an extraordinarily Correct. pragmatic, financially oriented method to drive growth. Right. And I think your argument is of the same type, which is it's not about making employees happy. It's an extraordinarily pragmatic, financially oriented way to create a form of loyalty and a form of productivity that fits the priorities of the firm. Correct. And um, I hate the word happy associated with the employee experience. <laughs> and not to say you were, but the goal is not to make them happy with work. Work is not really about being happy. It's about being fulfilled. It's about feeling like you're making a difference. And that's where I think that's the outcome, not the prerequisite to get them to work better. You help them work better, and then they feel like they're making a difference. They feel good about the contribution they make. That's a very different um, mindset about the equation of how this gets transferred into a better employee experience. You create a better employee experience. Workers are able to be more productive, more confident that what they're productive in is connected to the value the firm is creating, and that makes them fulfilled, satisfied, maybe happy a little bit, but but more of those other things that are that are better than happy. They're more about what you want. It's, you know, the, 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 there's always the studies that say parents um, with children, you know, they, 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 their happiness goes down, but would they trade it for being childless? No. They feel really good about having had kids and raised kids and that having them in their life. And as with five and three-year-old, I can attest to this. <laughs> but, you know, at any one moment, are you happy? Occasionally, but like you're more just feel really good and you, and you just love watching them grow up. I find it interesting that you that you led a little bit with the word distraction because it wasn't obvious to me what you were getting at. And so now I think I, I sort of see that clearer, which is the idea if if I'm so distracted, which really means that there really are few priorities. Everything is important or everything's a thing. I'm not really working on a a priority that drives the expected outcome. So I'm gonna I'm gonna focus our, our attention on the word outcome for a second because yeah. that I think that brings the, the client obsession back into the game here. When I see a lot of the sort of commentary on human capital, something that's implicit but often not explicit is that in many teams, activities rule the day, not outcomes. So people are busy, and busy begins to be its own language. Yes. How are you doing today? I'm really busy. Everyone's really busy, yeah. And um, I think there's a clarity here where people can be actually less busy but more productive because of the issue of I have true priority and more to the point – the desired outcomes are so clear to make make the client's experience so superior, so differentiated that there's goodness across the board. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, when I'm with a client and sometimes I'm with them to just give a speech and I give an hour-long speech and that is the full extent of me like literally working that day, that is way more productive than the days when I'm at my desk having lots of little internal meetings with different people. Not that any of those meetings aren't important, but there's certainly less productivity in terms of what value, what outcome we're creating for our client, right? That, that I came and, you know, changed a few minds at their sales kickoff or something, right? That is more impactful for me as an analyst at Forrester than having eight internal meetings that fill up my entire calendar. And, and, and you know, one of the things, meetings to me is probably one of the biggest pieces of distraction. And what's striking to me is when I talk to companies, the amount of time spent in meetings by their employees is almost an entirely unexamined set of data. So they don't know how many hours 
different groups of employees spend in meetings. They don't know what's being talked about or happening in those meetings. They don't know how often those meetings recur. They don't know if the employees feel like they're getting value out of those meetings or if the meetings are run well. We don't even look at that. That's crazy. That is, it's such a huge amount of time we spend in the week, in our work week, and we don't examine that data. Yeah, I'm going to almost respond emotionally to that. There's like a riddle me this moment where it's amazing how half-hour meetings last a half-hour and hour-long meetings last an hour. It's the weirdest, <laughs> it's the weirdest natural occurrence. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's got to fill the space. It's got to fill the space. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to return back to one of the points you made earlier about innovation. So I was with several executives of banks, and, and the conversation turned to innovation. And we sort of talked about this analogy of innovation when launched sort of felt like launching 10,000 puppies, all going <laughs> in different directions, banging into each other. Because everyone cute, wanted, at least, right? Cute. Yeah. Um, because everyone wanted to participate, but there was no rudder. So innovation plays a role here in EX. Could you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, – one of the challenges with innovation, not getting enough of it, if you want more of it, and this is one of the big things that our clients tell us, they want to improve the employee experience so that they get more innovation from more employees and feel, and more employees feel like they have permission. But then one of the challenges is, does permission feel like you've just let the puppies out to run? Because that's a disaster too, right? That, that is overemphasizing, uh, overcompensating and going too far the other direction. So um, I really loved, there was listening to one of your previous episodes with, um, and you had, I think it was the chief innovation officer at Nationwide. Yeah, Scott Sanchez. Yes. Yeah. And his definition of innovation, I thought was, was you need this at the top of your innovation pyramid, so to speak, which is, he said, our, how we define it is we want to delight people by solving their needs in ways they can't imagine. And now you've got some prioritization criteria. And I think this is one of the wonderful fusings of innovation and customer centricity is it has to be something that's going to add value for our customers or why would we want that innovation? And then that also then frees you up to say, this, these are going to be the big areas that will put a lot of prioritization, a lot of um, effort, resources around. But then we still want all of you 10,000 puppies to have permission to innovate. And you don't have to worry about it changing everything here. You can innovate in your lane. There's, and, and I think it's hard for people to wrap their minds around that something I control, something that's a small change in my world, is that can be innovation. But this is something when you create the right conditions, you create the right permissions for employees, and you give them real examples of what small but meaningful innovations look like, then they do feel like, oh, okay, I can still contribute to innovation here without having to have the light bulb moment, you know, the, the inventor moment that I think of as innovation. I can do it in a much more incremental, controlled way where I'm not getting in everyone else's way while they do their own innovation. Well, it's like innovation with a small eye, not from an impact perspective, but you're not standing up simply just an innovation group and that group over there is doing their own thing. And the expectation that that innovation is somehow brought back, folded into the the org that you're starting, you know, bottoms up almost. Plus it disentangles innovation from technology because often innovation Mm. is tied too closely with technology advancement or AI or something like that. Maybe process improvement or whatever. Simply, you know, stop stop the MacGyvering or duct taping (laughs) the processes and actually repair them is a moment of high innovation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in this conversation, we've talked about culture, solving the client's problem in a better way, innovation. Underneath this is the word change. Mm. And- We've gone to a place in the market where disruption is normal, that the word disruption is no longer, you know, really an effective word. Sort of change is (laughs) is a persistent thing. 
But the reason why culture and change became big ideas is because teams and people don't change well. <laughs> so how does EX sort of work that problem as well? Yeah, great question. So um, one of the main goals our clients ask us about for improving the employee experience is greater resilience in the face of change, in the face of all these transformations that they're undergoing. And um, one of the things that they're trying to create is um, flexibility in what employees are doing. So it doesn't feel like the change that I'm being asked to make as an individual, not only might I resist it because humans naturally resist change, but the organizational capabilities resist it. So you want employees to feel like, okay, if I'm going to be adapting to work in this new sort of um, team that's emerging here to, to solve this key problem that we have, that suddenly my reporting structures aren't totally just destroyed because we can't adapt to you having a temporary manager with your other manager, right? Um, we can easily bring people into a shared space where they can work together. That's not their, you know, someone taking over someone's team space. And I'm describing some of the underlying capabilities here, right? That we're able to adapt reporting relationships. We're able to adapt team workspaces because we know we have to be flexible and we know we can't predict which changes are going to come next, but that we have the capabilities to respond to changes as they happen. Those are some of the things we're seeing companies do to try and create more resilience to change. So it doesn't feel like I have to, I'm being asked to change and I have to overcome all the rigidness of our structure and our processes of this organization. I'm being asked to change, but there's so much here that lends itself to making the change easier for me because those pieces are going to work around me. I like the idea that you use the word change and the word adaptive in the same place because the way, I, way I, I see it is that change management tries to take someone from place A to place yes. B. And place B is fixed and somewhat certain. Right. Adaptive says it's sort of Dar Darwin on steroids, which is adaptation is constant. The climate you're in changes constantly. The reality on the, on the ground changes constantly. And adaptive learning, which is how do I sense when those changes are forcing my hand and how do I adapt to those changes? That's the permanent part of this game. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good formulation of it, that we are not anymore pretending that we will complete this change and then we're done with change, but that it is an ongoing thing. And so for it to be an ongoing thing that works and doesn't just you know make everyone crazy, it has to be something where there are all these flexible pieces around the employee or groups of employees that make it easy for them to move into different ways of working. Who are you having these conversations with when you're talking about building these structures or flexibility within an organization? In terms of roles? Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's one of the main challenges, by the way. Great question. The, the challenge that firms have, and this is the number one challenge, and we're, we're almost surprised actually when a company has solved this challenge, um, is they need to get the CIO and their organization, HR, and the very, you know, all the different pieces of their organization, operations, uh, lines of business managers, uh, often a CX lead, often several other people within the C-suite to collaborate on not only sponsoring these different ways of working, but make ongoing decisions that support further changes in being more flexible and more adaptive. And that isn't a group that exists in most organizations with a existing, um, you know, sort of like way, model, they don't have a standing yeah. meeting for this. Um, so companies are trying to stand that up where we have an EX council or an EX steering committee. But that's on top of all the other meetings they already had. And I was already talking about how we all have too many meetings. So it's difficult. We've been sort of talking about this idea um, here and with our clients about 
you almost need like an escape room start to this where you get those people in the room, you lock the door and together they have to work together as a team collaboratively, find the clues in the room, agree, work, you know, work, show teamwork and unlock that door and agree that we're going to work together going forward. And we can only get out of this room if we figure out a way for us all to work together and move this forward. Because otherwise, it would be way too piecemeal. And I think it's not to say there aren't tactical things you do, but those all need to, you have to have some confidence that they're aligning with the other, what the other parts of the organization are doing. The first observation is that escape room moment should not be filmed or recorded. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, and, and actually what we've been talking about with clients is it has to happen, not literally in an escape room, but it has to happen off site for you. So that to your point, Victor, it is a safe space for them. They don't feel like, oh, someone's going to see what we're doing in here and, and already start to undermine it. We're off site so that we can have real honest conversations and maybe some some arguments, some fights in that in that room so that we can get to a better place. Yeah, I think there's a the part to this in terms of how organizations are structured now and will be increasingly structured in the future because there was a certainty to hierarchies and silos so that if... I was going to mobilize my teams. I would just go do that on, right. on my my sort of on my watch and in my terms. Now, when you have these project teams coming and going, it really is an organization question. It's an organism question, and so there has to be something in lockstep and something that glues people together in real ways. Yeah, things like purpose and brand and what what's important about clients and that type of thing. So there, there's something about the overall organization wide thing that will matter, at least to me. I agree, and. The thing I would add to that is the confidence they have to, to know that we can act and not get in trouble. Mm. Like we can, we can have alignment we, and in part because we have alignment to those larger elements you talked about, we know that we can see this, make the decision and do it. And people will sort of rally around us rather than try to come and tell us to get back in our little box in the organizational chart. So employee experience typically has in it that the employee equals a human being. <laughs> and we're seeing more and more occasions where people need to plan for when the employee begins to be a digital entity, yeah. a robot, whatever it is. And there is a competency to that. There's a comfort level to that. How does EX play in the future of robotics, if you will? Yeah. So JP Gounder and I are working on research on this right now um, to better answer that question. Um, but what we're, we're finding and what we're hearing is a real commitment on the part of companies and on the part of the vendors in this space um, to trying to understand how the robots, how the artificial intelligences can help employees do more human things. And to me, that's the best case scenario here, where the humans contribute what humans can best contribute. And a lot of that is then more face time with the right customers. So, you know, implied in that is that the AI is offloading the, the really easy, simple tasks that aren't value adding and helping you map to the right customers with the right person. Um, and that we are taking off the plate of employees a lot of productivity activities, uh, sapping activities. The like The distractions you were talking about. Yeah, the distractions. So I don't have to schedule that meeting because it's going to be scheduled. Yeah. I don't have to... Um, clean up my notes and send them out to people because there's an AI that does that. Um, I don't have to, um, you know, remind everyone of the meeting upcoming or the, you know, assigned pre-work to it. The robot can do that um, or can, you know, make that pre-work even shorter because they're going to pull out the important bits. That's when I think we get back to a point where we don't feel 
overwhelmed by our technology, we feel enabled and empowered. And I do see, and I'm really encouraged by this, so much human-centered design at the heart of these efforts to create these new uh, robots and artificial intelligences. Where do we think we are in terms of readiness of not having the robots be under our command, but alongside us as peers, in some cases, providing direction to us? Because that's a very different human experience than yeah. I tell it to do things and it does things. Right. Yeah, we're not there. And 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 there's two factors here. One is um, the trust factor. And, and this is in part because robots and AI aren't good enough yet. We don't trust them. Um, and so if they're doing work, humans are still feeling compelled to check it. And that's going to persist for a while, I think, for a few more years at least. But the robots do get better. I mean, their learning capacity is much better than humans. And so they are improving steadily. The other factor, and I think this is a really interesting one and a much more emotional part of the equation, is as a human, if I'm working alongside a robot, I don't want to feel like I'm not really doing anything. I don't want to feel like I'm just there in case, you know, I need to flip the safety switch on. And this reminds me of the story that um, I know my colleague Anjali Lai has told on stage about the power of emotion that if you think about the Duncan Hines cake mix way back in the day in the 50s, they could make it where all of the ingredients went into the box in powdered form and you just dump and bake. But the, uh, and at this, that period of time, it mostly was the housewife wanted some agency, some contribution. So they backed out of that. You had to add an egg and add some water and a little oil. And now the people making those cakes went from talking about it as, yeah, well, it all came in the box to I baked this cake. And humans still want that with the robots. And I think that's a really important design perspective to have is how do we keep a real role for the human in this? And that the good thing is if you bring human-centered design to it, you pick up on that very quickly. And there's so much that humans for at least the foreseeable future, do better than robots in terms of adding the human element to it, the emotional connection to other people on the other end of those interactions, the customers, that you should be doing that. So we have a set of, of councils and our leadership boards that have focused on, on CX and digital and others. And from them organically came the strong desire for EX, which mm. I know, Sam, you've taken on. Could you walk us through why that showed up, what you're doing, where is this going? Because I think that's important that it was such a client-generated need out there um, and so powerfully stated. Yes, absolutely. I think um, Forrester, if we can be transparent here, was uh, talked into greater focus on this by our clients, which, great, we should follow our clients take us, but you know, we were a little skeptical at first. Um, the interest has come from uh, a few areas. And, and so from the CX side, which is one of the big areas of interest in one of our big sets of clients, they said, this is holding us back from improving customer experience, the quality of the employee experience, the lack of connections between creating the right processes, tools for employees so that they can deliver great customer experiences. We need to work on this. And they were actually often finding someone else in the organization, either in HR or in IT, who agreed with them and sort of informally partnering with them. And they wanted to um, take that a little bit more professional, which is they said, can you help us and help them help us? And then in IT, we saw a lot of interest from almost existential, like, what are we doing here? Can you help us reconnect what we do to its its purpose, its, its value? And, you know, they're fostering a lot of innovation. You've, you've talked about that on podcasts, but they're also now realizing we, we are the probably the beating heart of efforts to create great employee experiences because so much of what employees do now is use 
the technologies that we provide. And then the third real pocket of this is uh, what I call, and you know, I'm a little old to use this term perhaps, but woke HR, um, where they're, they're, they're waking up to, we can be so much more than human resources. We can create rules and hiring processes and performance evaluation methods that create an emphasis on our people being thriving, productive members of this community, this organization. And they want to up-level what their role is within the organization and are connecting organically and, and now with our help more to their CX colleagues, to their IT colleagues, because they see that as clearly the partner that they need to work with. Um, so that's where we're seeing the interest. And then what's fascinating to me is on we have a EX, an employee experience uh, community now, like a leadership board. And on that community, it's just started, so it's pretty small still, but we have like six different departments out of you know 10 or 11 people that are on it represented because the main point of contact could be in CX, could be in IT, HR, design, innovation, operations. And they're already represented that way in our small sample size. And what's good about that from the community perspective is they need to figure out how to work with those people in their organization. So they're getting guidance about the right language to use, what motivates those people from the other council members. And, and we're learning a lot from, from their interactions as well. So I find it interesting that in, in our world, because, you know, Forrester often does a lot of the future planning or in, we're always asked sort of what's next. And it's laced with sort of what's the future of robotics or what's the future of robots. And in this podcast and in other work that we've done, it seems like there's a parallel and equally important track of the future of the human being, which is in some cases is part and parcel of what EX is attempting to solve. Yeah. Going back to the first question that I asked, in your mind, what's the most important part of the game? Yeah, it would be for me connecting the humans in your organization, the human employees, uh, to the value that they're adding to your organization. And getting them to see and believe truly that you're invested in helping them deliver value through their work. And that can that is one about making them more productive, but it's two about making sure they know how their work helps the, the organization fulfill its purpose, live its values. That is most important to me. Sam, this has been a productive and rewarding and fulfilling <laughs> experience. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Forster's 2019 predictions are here. Download the guide at forcom slash predictions 2019 to uncover the major dynamics that will impact your business in the coming year. Again, that's forr.com slash predictions 2019. Thanks for listening.